Welcome to the Tech Policy Podcast. I'm Corbin Barthold. I'm obsessed with a book called The Collapse of Complex Societies by the anthropologist Joseph Tainter. Writing in 1988, Tainter investigated societal collapses across history, the Olmecs, the Old Kingdom in Egypt, the Romans, and so on. And what he found is that there are diminishing marginal returns on societal complexity as a tool for problem solving. As a society grows, administrative bodies tend to proliferate to the point where the, they stop adding value and start being a drag. Meanwhile, expenses such as welfare programs, legitimizing costs, and compensation for elites pile up. They are rarely scaled back. Eventually, the society grows sclerotic, loses the ability to cope with accumulating problems, and collapses. The notion that our society could collapse because of a dynamic along these lines is not some fringe wackadoodle idea. There are very smart people who take the possibility very seriously. In his book, Scale, for instance, the theoretical physicist Jeffrey West says that to avoid collapse, we must keep graduating to ever faster treadmills of material progress. The cycle of innovation, he writes, will be continually repeated, thereby pushing potential collapse as far into the future as the creativity, inventiveness, and resourcefulness of human beings allow. When you put it like that, the need for progress suddenly looks pretty serious. Fortunately, unlike the Romans or any of those other collapsed societies, we have somewhat routinized the process of scientific discovery and technological advance. If anything is going to save us, it's probably going to be that. But we need to figure out what drives progress and how we can get more of it. Who better to discuss this topic than Alex Stapp, a guy who has literally just founded a think tank called the Institute for Progress. Our mission, Alec writes with his co-founder, Caleb Watney, in the new group's mission statement, is to accelerate scientific, technological, and industrial progress while safeguarding humanity's future. Alec, welcome. Glad to be here, Corbin. Thanks for having me. So you're the co-CEO of the new Institute for Progress. I am keen to hear all about it. I was very excited when I saw this, this organization pop up. I've admired your work for a long time, so I was really glad when you unveiled it. Um, what spurred you to start a think tank? And what spurred you to start this one? And how did starting it go? Uh, and what do you aim to do? A pile of questions to start you off. All right, I'll, I'll check those in maybe random order. Um, how's it going so far? Uh, we are pleasantly surprised by the, the warm reception we've had. Um, we're very, very young. We launched in January of, of this year. So we're just uh, almost two months into doing this, but people seem very excited about our ideas. And there's a lot of friends and collaborators who are working with us so far to work on some of our main areas, including meta science, immigration, and biosecurity. And I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about those issue topics more in this, in this conversation. Uh, you know, why start a think tank? I think if you're trying to think about how you can do the most good in the world with your career, um, you, can't, you should consider a lot of opportunities out there, but you also need to kind of filter those through your experience and your skill set and your own expertise and what you're the best match for. And so I've spent the last five years working at various think tanks in Washington, DC, 
I've learned about a lot about this world. Um, influencing federal policy in the U.S. is a huge lever for influencing the world because a lot of other countries um, follow U.S. policy or are influenced by it. And the U.S. is just obviously the largest economy in the world. Um, it's a very large country. Uh, so what we do matters. And, and the policy um, in Washington, D.C. matters a lot for our economy and the world. And so a think tank seemed like a reasonable thing for us to do to um, have the biggest impact. And then why this think tank? Why now? Um, Caleb Watney, my co-founder, and I were colleagues at the Progressive Policy Institute um, for a bit more than a year. And then last summer, we you know, were talking to friends, and there was kind of a, a fervor and a hunger for new institutions. A lot of people in tech um, and, and elsewhere want to fund new institutions. They want fresh ideas, a clean slate, um, less inertia. You know, this is kind of a meta critique we have of U.S. institutions that become sclerotic and stagnant. Um, and there are some great think tanks, but a lot of them, you know, the same criticisms apply. And so we've been trying to work with inside the system as it previously existed and had some success, but we figured, you know, Caleb and I could co-found a new thing, start fresh and um, try out some new assumptions and experiments about how to influence policy in a really effective way. And so, yeah, we've, we were working behind the scenes for six months, building the thing, hiring people, building a website. Uh, and then, yeah, launched last January, this January, and it's been going great so far. I like at a micro level that you're really putting your money where your mouth is, because I feel like a lot of your cause is getting the United States to unwind some of uh, like an accumulated risk aversion. And you have <laughs> dove in and taken the risk of starting an organization. So you're, you're, you know, you're doing what you say we all should be doing. Totally. I want to turn first to metascience because I think it's such an important issue. And I don't think it's one either that many people are working on or even that many people are aware is like a thing or an issue. I don't think even people who do science think about, well, what is the rate of scientific um, advance? And, and, you know, they're certainly not, uh, if you get into like philosophy of science, it's really interesting, like Imre Lakatos and Firebrand and their debates over like, what is science? I'm totally drifting off now, but then like one level down, how do we make discoveries? How do we accelerate them? Is the rate slowing down? It's just a totally neglected topic. Um, so the studies, if you look into it, do say that our rate of scientific discovery, which, you know, it's debatable how you even measure that, but it is slowing down. How do we combat that trend? Yeah, it's a, it's a super important question. And I think to your point, it's really been neglected by traditional institutions um, in DC and around the country and around the world. Uh, and part of that's not an accident, right? Because a lot of the incumbent establishment is doing well under the current system in terms of like research dollars they receive, status they receive, prestige they receive. And so even though the rate of progress may be slowing down, um, it's the system is kind of working for the incumbents and it's broken for younger researchers or people trying to disrupt the status quo for radical breakthrough um, innovations. It's much getting harder to, to um, produce those kind of breakthroughs. And yeah, I think, I think it's underrated the set of institutions and incentives that scientists work within um, and it's really getting much harder over time. And so we thought, you know, this is what a great category for us. This is not neglected in, in the blogosphere. There are lots of great blogs out there um, from people who aren't traditional academics. Oftentimes they're people who like do it as a hobby. They work in tech and then at night they read like the latest academic literature on meta science and, and how our institutions are evolving. And so part of what we view our role at the Institute of Progress as is kind of making legible these voices 
outside of Washington, D.C., to policymakers and their staff working on these topics. And so you can't really send a blog post or a tweet to a staffer on Capitol Hill. They'll say, who is this person? What kind of authority do they have? Are they a legitimate voice? Um, but what we can do is say, you know, give that person a senior fellowship and co-brand a paper with them so they have like our institutional legitimacy backing them up. And now they're like a quote unquote respected expert. And so that's an underrated way of bringing bold new ideas to kind of stagnant institutions. And I think, yeah, it's an important idea of how do we accelerate progress? Well, basic research and development is, is core to that. And it's like thinking of it as a funnel, that's the top of the funnel. We have to get the ideas first and then we can talk about commercialization, implementation, and things further down the funnel. There are two potential ways that the system could be working for incumbents in a way that um, harms society as a whole. And one of them is very, say, fixable. Uh, people spend too much time working on grant applications. There's bureaucracy, you can streamline the system. Um, but the other is simply the notion that breakthrough scientific discoveries are not something Isaac Newton can find alone in his room. It takes vast institutional resources to push things forward because the low-hanging fruit has been found. Um, but by that metric, we might just be screwed. I mean, you uh, noted elsewhere, I saw you say that, you know, a doubling of scientific knowledge may take eight times the number of researchers um, I didn't put that well. To, to double our knowledge, we need to multiply who's researching by eight times. There you go. Uh, which would suggest that it's just inevitable that scientific progress is going to slow down. So do you see yourself as sort of just buying us time and, and unclogging the system a bit, even as we inevitably slow down? Or do you see yourself as capable of creating a, a scientific explosion if you succeed? Yeah, I think, I think Corbett, that's a really perceptive critique. And some of our smartest friends in the space, this is their pushback, which is like, yes, you can increase the efficiency or effectiveness of our scientific institutions by 10, 20, 30%. And that's good because you get that faster progress. But if you really, if, you know, if there really is a low hanging fruit model of innovation and it just gets harder and harder um, to find the next big breakthrough because it's just more complex um, to figure out what's going on with the, under, with the underlying reality, then you're going to hit this fundamental limit no matter how good you make the scientific institutions. I think there's definitely some truth to that. What I would say is, one, we can't fix the underlying reality. We have to deal with it as it is. And so we should, on the margin, you know, get our improvements where we can. But two, if it's more about like not just the incentives or the structures of our institu scientific institutions, but how many you know, great minds we can throw at these problems, then you also need to think about another topic we work on, immigration. Um, you need to think about you know, growing the um, population of humans so we have more brains um, to reach those doublings uh, of scientific progress. And so this is why we think that there are lots of geniuses in developing countries, low-income countries that don't have the opportunity ever in their lives to contribute to the frontiers of science because that's only happening in a handful of, of countries around the world and primarily it's happening in the United States. And so how do we get more people like that to the U.S. so they can contribute um, to accelerating science is a big question for us. Um, and then you know, lastly, I would say that uh, uh, for this, this acceleration to happen, I mean, I think you just need to think about that, like, inevitably it will slow down because you can't get like the times eight, times eight, times eight, a number of researchers, inevitably. 
but there's a critical, some people have labeled it, this is the most important century. We're right now facing multiple existential risks from pandemics to climate change, certain, certain scenarios for climate change, artificial intelligence, nuclear warfare. We're really in this like precipice moment as Toby Ord calls it, where we could destroy humanity forever. And so getting that scientific progress to happen now in the next hundred years matters way more um, than letting it more slowly play out over time. And so yes, we might hit fundamental limits in the long run where no amount of immigration, no amount of reforms for scientific institutions can really um, mitigate slowdowns in scientific progress, but getting through this next 100 years um, with faster progress on technologies that'll protect humanity, that's the safeguarding humanity part of our mission, that's really critical and why like, this near term matters so much. I've heard you say that policy people underestimate the importance of technology to achieving their public policy goals and that technologists underestimate the importance of public policy to achieving their technology goals. Um, and I think that's so true. And the main example I think of, which weirdly kind of ties into what you were just talking about, um, is life extension, which some people see as a really kooky field and there's a lot of debate over how seriously we should take it. Um, but certainly uh, if you need scientific advance, people living longer and accumulating wisdom and experience while still remaining healthy would be one way to increase knowledge and scientific discovery. Uh, and some of those people in that field make some pretty bold claims, shall we say, that we're going to hit, you know, um, lifespan, escape velocity, and you like, you're in my lifetime, you know, you and I have like a real prospect of living a thousand years. And it all is very intriguing. Um, and, but the thing they're always missing, I'm like, okay, wait until you hit the FDA, dude. Like they're, they're, even if they got the science right, which is kind of doubtful, but you know, whatever, say they're totally on task and they will hit their milestones when they say, getting treatments through the bureaucratic process, I, I think they just don't account for that at all in their time or resource uh, table. There's like a total almost ignorance of the one side and the other. Um, how do you bridge that gap? How do you get the DC people and the Silicon Valley people to sort of understand each other? How do you get them sort of in the room together um, you know, what, is that what you're trying to facilitate basically? Yeah, I think we definitely want to help those two communities communicate each other. And I think that your point about longevity being a good case study here is really important. So I think it's good to be concrete about what goals Silicon Valley writ large, not the place, but like the community of technologists, um, what their goals are, what they're trying to do, and then vice versa, what people in the East, East Coast, DC policy community, what, what our goals are. Uh, and I think to start with East Coast, I think healthcare is a huge topic. There's, you know, increases in costs for Medicare, Medicaid are one of the largest drivers of U.S. national debt. There are big questions around how do we get higher quality care for lower costs? That's kind of the, you know, big dream of people working in healthcare policy. And a lot of my friends who work in the longevity space for, for biotech companies talk about how really, you know, we should be treating longevity as, a, as we should be treating long, um, aging as a disease. And if you target longevity along the way, you're going to be able to probably um, incidentally, you know, decrease mortality rates for, for cancer, um, diabetes, heart disease, et cetera. Uh, and that could be a way to lower uh, healthcare spending costs while getting better outcomes. And so I think 
that's a goal that uh, DC policymakers have because it makes a lot of other, other budget problems much easier, but they need to be leveraging the talent, expertise, risk-taking, innovative capacity that private tech companies and others have in this space. And then vice versa, to your point about FDA and longevity, um, <laughs> these companies will not be able to uh, innovate if they can't get regulatory approval. And then another part of this that I think is more about um, proactive or um, positive sum policymaking, which is that not only, you know, the government is not only restrictive on innovation, it's also it can be a catalyst for innovation because with a lot of these new technologies, including in biotech, there's very uncertain demand about, you know, who will buy the new product, um, how much of it will they buy. And the government can serve as a buyer of first resort and say, you know, this technology is 10 years out, um, any kind of particular longevity therapy or something. But if it's successful, we will buy, you know, a hundred million, um, you know, courses of treatment from these companies if they meet certain certain benchmarks. And that lets the companies know, like, if we're successful, we'll have a huge market demand at a minimum, a certain level that decreases risk for venture capitalists. And so that can actually accelerate innovation and bring more private financing to private companies um, with the government as a good partner. And then <laughs> I think back to your first point, on a separate but related topic, I think it's actually an empirical question whether longevity would increase the rate of scientific progress writ large, like having you know, our smartest minds live decades longer, because there's this really this debate about the classic line is like scientific science progresses one funeral at a time, right? <laughs> well, for having way fewer funerals, um, that's not a, that's, that would hurt from that angle. Um, and you know, this is like the Kuhnian structure of scientific revolutions that the incumbent old old researchers and scientists have a certain paradigm they're invested in, and all their proteges push that for years and years and years. And only when the old guard dies dies off does, does a new paradigm take hold. But then conversely, and I think you mentioned this earlier, uh, the idea being that, well, if, if where it's a low hanging fruit model, uh, science is getting harder and harder to have fundamental breakthroughs, then you know maybe breakthroughs would happen in your twenties and thirties before, but now as a researcher, you need to accumulate a larger knowledge base, get more experience, work um, in an interdisciplinary fashion. So maybe those big breakthroughs aren't coming um, inherently until your forties, fifties, sixties. And so, having greater longevity could help in that sense. So I think I view those as intention and it really is an empirical question that I don't think we have a great answer to of like, you know, yeah, how, how much longevity would help for scientific progress? Like I see it pulling in both directions. Totally. Well, I mean, the, the average age of breakthrough that earns one a Nobel prize in the hard sciences is going up. And it's like, well, does it take you longer to work your way through the system and become like the head person who's getting the grants? Or is it taking you longer to master all of the material in your field that you have to grasp before you can get to the edges and find new things? Um, I'm so glad that you picked up on that aspect of my question. Um, please like go study that. Could your organization, you know, figure that out. That would be awesome. I'm sure it's a, it's really simple. I'm sure. Yeah, we got a, it covered. We got it. Yeah, you yeah. got it covered. Um, no, that's such a great and interesting issue. I mean, the whole life extension topic creates a lot of sort of interesting philosophical issues that I guess we'll have to overall, you know, save for another time. Mm -hmm. um, you have these great ideas and it's nice to say, oh, hey, like uh, if we get geothermal energy, that would be awesome. Or like, no, life, life extension, that would create more health span and that would reduce cancer. And on the Hill, that's just not how things 
work. I mean, it's, it's the, the politicians are not sitting there being like most of them, like, I, I just want great ideas, no matter how sort of idiosyncratic. And in, in, in fact, they're often not looking to go against the grain. They have constituents. So like the life extension versus cancer issue would be one, it, you know, you go in, you have a fancy PowerPoint that shows actually you would reduce cancer if you extended life's uh, health span. Sorry because you know cancer is basically your cells going crazy and as long as you have young cells they won't do that you solve cancer through life extension let's put money into this and that's that's not going to get you anywhere your politicians are going to say our constituents are way more interested in cancer research both um the actual interest groups that currently exist and the population um writ large uh there is a sausage making machine on the hill. So how do you have a specific strategy for how you go about making change in DC? Because I assume your plan is not to write really interesting sort of out there papers and wave them around on DC. You've got to kind of get in the system and simultaneously try to speak to what politicians are interested in. Um, you know, politics being the practice of the possible or whatever, while at the same time bringing something new and trying to shift the debate, you know, how do you navigate that path? Yeah, it's a really tough question. And I'll also give you our theories and tell you why, based on our experience, both Caleb, myself, and the rest of our team, why we think our, our, our theory of change will work. But I'll just caveat it at the front by saying, you know, we take a very experimental approach to policy change in DC and we're constantly trying new things. If they don't work, we'll update. So you know, talk to me in a year, maybe we'll help change our strategy. But um, for now, what we think is to your point about not writing big bills or trying to have like, you know, fundamental change because it's so hard to go against these incumbent interests. I think that's definitely, we're realists and pragmatists in that sense. Um, and, you know, we see a lot of people in think tank world and policy world who write pie in the sky, 50 page white papers of, the you know, fundamental ground up rethinking of FDA policy, for example, or any, take any policy area. And the odds of that becoming reality are less than 1%, right? And it's almost, almost worthless to spend your time on something like that. Um, though it can serve a purpose of inspiring people or painting a vision 50 years from now or 30 years from now, what we could achieve. So I'm not saying never do that, but on a day-to-day -day basis, what we spend most of our time doing and what we think actually has the chance to make incremental progress and actually improve the world is understanding how DC policy currently works. Maybe I'll just talk about just the legislative side right now. We can have a whole different conversation later or another time about the regulatory um, side of things, which is as, as important, if not more important. Um, but right now we're in a situation where Democrats have a trifecta um, in government with both the House, Senate, and the White House. And so there's a unique opportunity to actually get things done in Congress through legislation. And at a very high level, I'll just say that the way DC works right now is that each year, a few major omnibus um, comprehensive legislative packages pass. They cover a, a wide array of policy areas. They're hodgepodge. Um, they're often not coherent because it'll just include like social policy, infrastructure, um, you know, just <laughs> childcare policy, family policy, just all sorts of different things kind of melded together in one very large package. And it becomes must-pass legislation. So you the, the odds of um, that bill in particular. So I'm thinking of the infrastructure bill or the current reconciliation bill that was called Build Back Better or the annual National Defense Reauthorization Act. Um, these are the bills that pass. And so our job is to insinuate ourselves into that process, find champions in Congress who agree with us on general goals 
And we act as a quote unquote legislative subsidy to them, providing our expertise and saying, your office has this pre-existing goal of, you know, um, you're, you're, a, you're an immigration champion and you do support high school immigration. Okay, let's talk about how we can um, make the immigration provision in this new science funding bill better. The bill is mostly about subsidies and increasing spending on basic research and development, but we recognize that the one provision about immigration is actually the most important. And we also recognize by tweaking an immigration provision, you know, that would be a green card cap exemption for PhD students, if we added just the word and master's students to that green card exemption, it's now 10x more better because there are 10 times as many master's students as PhD students in many fields and industries. And so it's finding things on the margin, like how can we add five words to this piece of must-pass legislation to make it much better um, and get the most bang for our buck. And so we're constantly looking for angles like that and working with allies. But the key mistake most people make is coming into a situation with pre-existing goal and saying like, somebody has to do what I want them to do. And we're gonna try to get them to introduce their own standalone bill that actually has no chance of passing, but it like checks a box for one of my stakeholders. And like, it's a very legible, explicit deliverable to somebody else who can justify their job as a donor to my organization. And it's understandable why that happens, but we don't think it's actually effective in terms of changing policy. That was actually a great explanation of what <laughs> I mentioned, the sausage making of, of getting in there and being effective. One of our biggest problems is that we struggle to build things. That's a topic that is, um, you know, really in, in the narrative, shall we say, and, but there's, it's true. Um, and I could cite just so many examples. The University of uh, California, Berkeley recently was in the news, my law school alma mater, uh, because they ran into CEQA, the notorious California environmental process law that basically lets almost anybody come in and gum up the works um, of, it, of almost any building project. That probably deserves its own episode. <laughs> At any rate, you acknowledged this in your introductory essay, yet I noticed that build stuff is not one of your initial uh, action areas. And I'm curious, is that because you don't see um, cutting infrastructure red tape as a tractable problem? Maybe you can get in in your answer to how that fits into your, um, your thinking and um, or, or, or what? what? Why is that not in there? Yeah, it's, it's very observant to notice that um, because we do, Caleb and I talk about this quite a bit, tweet about it sometimes, um, but it's not an active policy area for us yet. Um, and the framework you're referencing to kind of, you know, there are dozens, if not hundreds of different policy areas or categories that think they can work on. And so as a focused institution, as, you know, considering the scarce attention, time and resources we have, how do we choose what to work on? The framework we borrowed from the effective altruism community um, which applies to anything anyone can work on in any industry or field, is to think about spending your time on things that are tractable, meaning you can make change in the area. Um, neglected, not many people are working on it, um, and impact, impact, like high impact, high impact potential. If you were to change it, how much would it actually matter for doing good in the world? And so the first three areas that we've already kind of been talking about today, uh, meta science, immigration, and biosecurity, we think fit, if not all of those categories, at least two of them. Um, and to your point about building things, we think it's, we satisfies all three criteria. And really, we just wanted to start with three areas to fo help focus ourselves, test out some of our assumptions, prove out our model, and just make sure that we were hiring key people to lead certain areas for us. So we found somebody great to, to work on immigration for us, Jeremy Neufeld, um, Nikki Taran is our uh, biosecurity lead. And so really, Caleb and I are talking about, okay, 
we have a lot of people are supportive of us and want us to expand. So if we find a great person to lead, you know, kind of an infrastructure urbanism that would include both housing and transportation that those kind of building projects run into CEQA and NEPA at the federal level, the National Environmental Policy Act, another environmental process law, as you put it, um, that, that would be a great hire. And so we're actually actively looking for this. We haven't posted a job yet, but like a climate slash energy person um, and a, you know, urbanism, which will cover both housing and, and transportation. Those are two areas that we're actively um, considering expanding into because they are so important, but really it was more just like a prioritization sequencing thing that we're not yet working on it. But in, if we come back in a year, we'll probably have somebody on one, if not both of those areas. Uh, listeners, you <laughs> you heard it here. If you reach out to Alex. Dan, Let me know. Alec at progress.institute. Send me your CVs. Um, it, I'm peppering you with questions that really uh, make it sound like your organization is expected to save the world uh, <laughs> because I've, no pressure. Gone through, I've gone through sausage making, but now I'm going to ask how you change the, the culture. You know, we we are weighed down by the FDA's drug approval process. You mentioned NEPA, um, which we've talked about in past episodes and how it can gum things up to no actual benefit for the environment. Um, if you're into drones, you know, you may be frustrated with the FAA blocking drone delivery. There's all these things. And it's one thing to come up with, uh, it's hard enough, I should say, to come up with those clever policy ideas. You're talking about adding those five words in the law or, or wouldn't it be great if ideas, um, it's hard enough to come up with those ideas, but actually that is to me often the easy part. Um, clever people in DC, there's plenty of them who are perfectly capable of coming up with like wonktastic solutions as, as you talked about, you know, check out my latest white paper. The difficulty is actually um, a, a grassroots thing that I think a lot of people don't think much about invisible life improvements that would they would really like if they existed. Um, there's a lot of status quo bias. Um, I don't know, Steve Jobs weirdly pops into my head as, as like, you know, I make products that people will like when they get them that they have never even occurred to them. Like I don't do customer surveys and then respond to those. And yet that's how politics works. I mean, we're a democracy, it's, it's you know, for good reason. How do you go about that public attitude problem? How do you evangelize for progress? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a great question. And going back to that, what I was mentioning about organization focusing and thinking like, what's our comparative advantage? How should we spend our time and resources? This like grassroots activism or more cultural, culture level influence, um, it's definitely something we think about as currently outside of our scope and not our focus because it is one, it's so hard and we think it's less tractable than the kind of direct policy influence. We have, a, we have an elite theory of change of how do we convince staffers in, on Capitol Hill and at the regulatory agency that our ideas are good and worth prioritizing and they can you know, help influence their bosses, the actual elected officials or um, leads at these agencies um, and influence them in the long run. That's really kind of where we spend our time because we're a small team and we think that's where you get the biggest bang for your buck. But that's not to say that the grassroots slash cultural channel isn't really important because it is. And so I'll say just at a personal level, both Caleb and myself, um, this is like why we think part of why we think tweeting is important. Like that's where a lot of the cultural conversation happens. Only 10% of Americans are on Twitter. Like 
even checking in once a month. So it's a small, it's still a small group. Um, but we think the conversation happening on social media is often upstream of it's where you see what we think society will be talking about in five to 10 years at a much broader level. And so participating in that conversation is important. Um, back to talking about NEPA and CEQA. Um, that's one that I've observed in real time kind of changing where five, 10 years ago, either people weren't talking about it at all, or when it was discussed, it was like, well, it has the word environment in it, so it must be good, right? Like, it was very simple surface level analysis. And then I'll just credit like some like our friend Eli Dorado at the Center for Growth and Opportunity. I think he was one of the earliest voices talking about how this really is a process law that has no substantive environmental protections. And it's been just abused and exploited by mostly NIMBYs and people who want to block building, not because it's actually bad for society because it's bad for their neighborhood or their own property or their own interests. Um, and so I think that cultural change is happening. I think, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if some of your listeners would have seen last week, Ezra Klein had a very long piece in the New York Times talking about using this Berkeley example, like you mentioned, to talk about why we can't build anymore. And the thrust of the piece mostly, like, I mean, his reasoning was like, look at NEPA and CEQA. And that's incredible that a liberal uh, writer in the New York Times writes a long piece about why we can't build and he identifies two environmental laws. That's, that's huge progress. And staffers read that. People, a lot of people follow, they think of Ezra as a quote unquote thought leader, which is a terrible term, but a real thing that exists. Um, and then right lastly- with stakeholder. Exactly, exactly. Just these awful terms. Um, and then lastly, on the cultural stuff, I'll give a few more shout outs to people that we view as like playing more of that role where we're going to like, you know, specialize and, and take a, a different approach. Uh, Works in Progress is a great online magazine run by some of our friends. The Neoliberal Project is awesome. They're doing more grassroots community building. Um, and then I think we're seeing early progress with California EMB um, as well, where California is seeing finally the bubbling up of, of grassroots support to actually change housing laws. I admire your Twitter presence, by the way. You, you're, you're out there and, you know, there's a lot of, uh, shall we say, red rose types on Twitter who can be pretty nasty. And you, you always have, uh, you maintain sort of good spirits and civility. So hat tip to you there. Thank you, I try. Um, moving maybe a little away from your, your organization's goals then, but to your thoughts and what you believe and as you look out at the, the world, you know, how you, how you assess things. Do you keep up with the arguments made by Tyler Cohen, Ross Douthat, others, um, that as we try to spur progress, and this kind of ties to the grassroots point, that we have a, a cultural problem, you know, forget politics for a moment, that it's, it's really, there's a risk aversion that is getting into the, uh, the national psyche or whatever, if you want to put it that way. You know, the terms that get thrown around are complacent class or decadent society. Um, you know, I've heard it said by multiple people, like not even our movie plots are not new anymore. We always, we just reboot franchises or make sequels. Um, is that a real concern? Uh, do you have any thoughts on what to do about it in your organization or outside of it? Um, go. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I think I'll start in reverse then. At our organization, definitely not a focus or priority for us. Again, we view this as like a more diffuse, really far upstream problem to affect. We're much more downstream in the applied, like what's the fight on Capitol Hill today or what, can we, what new rulemaking is coming down at an agency in DC um, that we can improve on the margin, make 1% better, um, which again, 1% matters a lot when these what happens in DC affects the entire economy and 
um, the world uh, indirectly. Uh, but I do follow these debates. I think they're really important. And I think they're definitely grasping at something that is true. Uh, and I think it's mostly, it's probably mostly an effect of like what happens to rich societies in general. People start optimizing for different things. So instead of, you know, being having 10% more income, they'd rather have less change and less disruption in their lives and they become more risk averse. And um, a lot of different things happen along those margins. The problem that I see is that there are still things that can shake us out of our complacency, um, but they seem to be very bad in nature, like war or conflict. Um, for example, I'm sure, you know, as, as we're recording this in late March, uh, everyone's been following, I'm sure all of your listeners have been following the Russia-Ukraine um, situation intently. And Putin has unified the West and especially Europe in a way that I think has shocked almost everyone and kind of awoken um, liberal democratic values and solidarity among the West in a, in, in a way that not many, almost anyone I've seen could have predicted. Um, but I don't want it to take a war started by someone who just universally agreed to be evil or bad. Like just, it's easy to oppose Putin. And so now we have the European Union acting quickly and having, showing a lot of agency that they previously didn't have. Um, like, I don't know, have you seen that one, account, one Twitter account that's like, is the EU concerned question mark? And then all it does is quote tweet, it quote tweets statements by the EU like press account that says like the EU is very concerned about what's happening in Azerbaijan or like oh the EU God, is very concerned. Yeah, and so like it always quote tweets them and it just says, yes, like, yes, the EU is very concerned. And that was like a joke, but also gesturing at a real phenomenon, which is like the EU seemed um, impotent and unable to like actually take action given its structure and it's like fragmented nature. And so now we're seeing real action and urgency because of the threat from Putin um, in the East. And so there are things like primarily war that still motivate democracies and rich countries to take dramatic action, but I wish it didn't. And I'm looking for other things. I mean, like COVID is another example. There are lots of criticisms of how we handled the pandemic, but having multiple safe and effective vaccines developed in less than a year, almost no one predicted that. Um, a huge success, um, something that a stagnant society couldn't achieve, that China could not achieve, still has not achieved. Um, but, you know, I also don't want it to take a pandemic for us to get radical progress. So we're trying to still think through in our, in our organization, what like uh, catalysts beyond war or natural disaster or a pandemic um, can actually accelerate change and we're, we're still looking, unfortunately. Um, oh, you're giving me a great like movie villains. We're gonna, we're gonna blow up the moon just to startle people. And anyway, right, right, you know, I, right. I, I, um, there actually was a conspiracy theorist. I, this is why it popped into my head who thought that all of humanity's problems would be solved by blowing up the moon. That is why that popped into my head. Interesting. Um, Tainter, who I mentioned at the outset, he, engages in a thorough critique, a very effective one, of Oswald Spengler. Uh, Spengler wrote a famous multi-volume work, The Decline of the West, in which he posited basically that civilizations are the superorganisms with very defined lifespans um, that sort of have a, a spiritual rise and a spiritual decline. It, everything kind of starts to go to pot in his view once people leave the countryside and a society starts to urbanize. Well, Tainter 
pointed out that it was all sort of unfalsifiable woo-woo. Um, and I mean, he's right. But against my better instincts, I have to say, I think of Spengler when I look at the issue of birth rates, because it's so mysterious. I mean, there's something really deep going on. I don't deny that around the edges um, with tax policy, family policy, uh, housing policy, you, you can definitely play with birth rates around the edges in a society, but, it, but it's much deeper than that. The declining birth rates across the developed world, um, it's going on in too many different countries for it to be just some policy solution. And yet there's so much debate over what is driving that? You know, is it a lack of faith in the future or comfort or something about like postmodernism? Like what has seeped into our brains and our souls that is causing this? Um, and I just, I don't know. I find that issue so fascinating. Yeah, I think, I think it's an area that if I were to predict what will become much more popular to discuss or philosophize about, I think this falling fertility rates issue is going to become much more important over the next five to 10 years. I think we're already starting to see people switch from worrying about, you know, overpopulation was a big concern in the 60s, 70s, 80s. And there's still some remnants of that in the public discourse of we have too many people, it's bad for climate change. But I think many uh, people on the, at the vanguard of public discussion are realizing like underpopulation um, and falling fertility rates is a much more important issue and, and realistic concern for the future. And so I'll caveat that again, just saying, you know, these are tentative answers, but my current theory would be that mostly it's, it's, you know, um, I'm trying to think of Dietz Volrath's book, um, which he says that a lot of our problems um, with stagnation are actually signs of success. Uh, and I think this is a, a sign of success in some sense that is a, a problem of success, which is that women's autonomy uh, and equal rights and increasing wealth and the ability to make choices with your own fertility and family planning uh, has led to dramatic reductions in, in, in birth rates. Uh, so that's not a problem in of itself. And it's, it's good that we have that situation. Um, and I think we're learning just how many complications, more, more public awareness and public discussion about um, you know, the health risks that pregnant women face and the real pain and costs that they bear disproportionately relative to men, like they bear pretty much all of the costs. Um, and so to your point, those are reasons enough to increase, in my opinion, child tax care, child tax credits, um, you know, just give families and parents much more money to compensate for the costs that they bear to raise the next generation of, of humans. Um, and, but again, that won't solve the fertility issue in and of itself. And so really then you have to think about like radical solutions, like artificial wombs, because if pregnancy is such a cost for women and a health risk, then we need to think about technological solutions that reduce their disproportionate burden. Um, and just noting that we will always wanna respect people's agency and autonomy, but I've seen some pretty compelling research uh, evidence or survey evidence that at least in America, and I think in most developed world, women aren't having their desired number of children. Like they actually desire something around like two and a half on average children, but they're having less than two. Um, and so we need to give them tools to actually achieve their desired um, or stated preference for family size. Um, and thinking of that in that frame, I think is a really good idea because this is obviously a fraught topic when we're talking about um, reproductive choices. 
Yeah, you mentioned artificial wombs and like it's so easy to drift from that straight into uh, culture war debates and right. I'm here for it. I don't care. Like, well, yeah, yeah. But, uh, but uh, so podcasts are for Corbin. Yeah, yeah. No, it, that that really uh, is a great way to spark debate. Uh, yeah, we can dive into uh, parental rights on uh, school curriculums next. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta go. I, yeah, it's my time, but, you know. Yeah. Well, um, <laughs> as we close close out, um, you know, I think we the arc of the episode has kind of gone from the micro to the macro. Uh, what are your big picture thoughts about progress and the future? Um, you know, going back to I started the episode with talk of of like collapse, forget progress. So where are we headed? Do you spend more time thinking about staving off? collapse or more time about like the uh, sci-fi awesome uh, <laughs> artificial womb flying car uh, future? You know, what do you dream about as you work? Yeah, that's a great question. How I spend my time and what I dream about, well, I actually, maybe I'm just such a pragmatically minded person, but I often just think about like, how can we get the most change and do the most good and how we're positioning or framing a lot of these issues. And so if people are familiar based on this conversation or what they've seen from our institution, our think tank previously, we're really drawing, trying to draw on ideas from the effective altruism and progress studies communities. And those actually have, tend to have the opposite valence or um, framing in the public mind as far as people are aware of them. People often think of effective altruists and particularly long-termists as like doomers. Like they're thinking about like, what are the existential risks humanity, humanity faces? Like, if it's an asteroid or a comet that hits Earth and destroys everything, or a nuclear war, or Toby Ord's book, yeah, Toby Ord's book, basically, right? Yeah, like we're on the precipice of disaster, um, and that leads to often implications of like we need to slow down progress because it's actually dangerous and risky to, to accelerate quickly. And so I think those are serious ideas that we all that we talk about internally a lot at our organization, and we think that informs a lot of our work um, in terms of like which types of technologies should we be accelerating versus decelerating. Um, but for public framing, we think that's not really effective. Um, people in politics and elsewhere tend to be drawn more to like a positive, optimistic vision of the future. On average, there are obviously exceptions. Um, and so we think that, you know, what are we building toward? What kind of society is our ideal? What's the utopia we're trying to reach? Um, it's much more motivating and just practical in terms of making change happen. And so the progress studies community is much more about that framing, in our opinion, and we, we prefer to talk in that way. And so maybe I'll just, to close out on like my positive vision for the future, I'll just riff off of Derek Thompson at the Atlantic. He's called it the abundance agenda. And I think that's a really good framing of thinking about like economists frame everything in terms of scarcity. Um, what is the scarce resource that you're trying to um, use most efficiently or get the highest value use out of? And scarcity in politics is pretty much a poison. Um, it creates a zero sum mindset where people become much more tribal, territorial and defensive and is a roadblock for getting things done in our experience. And so if you work on policy or just trying to improve the world, always try to think about like, what's a positive sum frame for this thing I'm trying to do? How can I minimize the number of losers from this change and make it as, as positive sum and win-win as possible? And then you often face fewer obstacles when you do that. And so by an abundance agenda, I mean, in 30 years, are we 10 times as rich as we are today in the US and around the world? Um, do we have clean, abundant, zero carbon energy from geothermal, nuclear, wind, solar? 
And insofar as we still use natural gas, you know, for heavy industry, are we doing carbon capture to make that, you know, carbon neutral as well? Um, it's, you know, longevity, like we talked about, we're living decades longer without decades longer health span. And those are like healthy years as well. Um, so this is an abundance mindset of like, how can we become much richer? Um, I think for a long time, for decades, there was a consensus in the economics literature that uh, there's a plateau on happiness and well-being if you reach a certain income level. And research over the last 10 to 15 years has actually found that no, there is a log linear relationship with income and happiness. And so every 10% increase in income leads to a linear improvement in happiness and well-being. Um, so it gets harder and harder. They're diminishing returns, but that just tells me we need to work harder. We need to like get more radical change so that we can keep improving people's well-being. But there, there really is no ceiling. Um, and that kind of motivates me to make the future as good as possible for the most people. Well, and I even learned something on the way out the door. Well, I love it. I love what you're doing. I love that outlook. Um, any specific projects or papers uh, on the horizon that we should look out for from your organization? Yeah, I think um, I'll just mention two categories. Um, we're always moving between different things. Just for people who are interested in like stopping pandemics, I would motivate them to read our, the work by our lead, Nikki Taran. Her, she's been covering... There's a bill in the Senate called the Prevent Pandemics Act that we think is good, but needs much more money and certain tweaks to make it better to actually prevent the next COVID, um, which is inevitable on certain timescales and could be much worse than the experience of the past two years. And then on the immigration side, um, we're working actively uh, on certain uh, green card exemptions for STEM workers. And so, you know, if you think that high-skilled immigration is good, take a look at Jeremy Newfeld's work at our organization. And if you live in a state with a Republican senator who has expressed openness to high-skilled immigration, <laughs> contact them, help us push this across the finish line um, in the Bipartisan Innovation Act. So those are two big pieces of legislation that we're focused on trying to make happen before the midterms, because who knows who will control Congress next year. Fantastic. Well, Alec, this has just been sterling. Um, I look forward to following your organization's progress, uh, no pun intended. <laughs> and uh, you know, you're welcome back on anytime. Everyone, I've been trying to get back into the habit. I've been saying it. You know, if you enjoy the Tech Policy Podcast, give us uh, that five star rating wherever you listen. Um, does us a lot of good and helps us make progress. So um, while you do that, I'll go get to work on the next episode. Alex Stapp, thank you for your time. I'm Corbin Hartwell. Thanks, Corbin. The Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax-deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.